This is Jew 2, Tales of the Mixed Multitude. I'm Rabbi Emily Cohen. This episode is produced in collaboration with the Jewish Home Project at B'nai Jeshurun on the Upper West Side of Manhattan and with Labshul, a pop-up community in New York City that I'm lucky enough to be resident rabbi for. We recorded the interviews for this episode live at the Rabbi Rachel Cowan Chapel at B'nai Jeshurun and were joined by audience members from both the BJ and Labshul communities. Our topic? Multi-heritage couples, or as they're often known, interfaith couples. How do couples comprised of one person who's Jewish and one person who's not handle all of the joys and complexities of having two faiths in one home? And how do rabbis handle this in an era where 70% of non-Orthodox Jews are opting for partners who are not Jewish? I guess three months into dating my now wife, it was time for her to introduce me to her mom. And so Sarah was going to get introduced to John from Forest Hills, because that's what I had been for three months. For those of you who are listening and can't see, I'm Japanese. (laughs) Surprise! God, Mom, if you're listening to this, I'm really sorry. But uh, my mother took me for what I literally to this day call an exorcism, where she had me go to a Rebbitzin that was very well known here in New York, a rabbi's wife. My mother was like, let's go, we're gonna talk to her. I'm an only child. My father passed away the year before I met John. And we're very close, I love her very much. But this was very painful. And I was willing to like do something to make it it better. And the next thing I know, I'm in this Rebbitzin study, and she's like over my head, like saying all these prayers and and all this stuff. And I'm like, what the heck is going on? We never, she never actually talked to me. We never like a thing, like I thought she was gonna facilitate a conversation between me and my mom. And this was gonna be like, a, you know, a chance to really, no. It was like all of these prayers over my head or whatever. And then it was over. And I was like, what the family show, blank. <laughs> You know, and that, I mean, I say it in a joking way. I think I was pretty distraught. I don't, was I, I think I was pretty upset afterwards. I'm sure it was monumental at the time, but there was probably something on TV I was watching. So, (laughs) uh, kidding aside, I remember it. And on one hand, I was proud to be part of something that was so significant in my mother-in-law's being that she needed to do this. Um... I was sad in that, I mean, who who does this stuff? Uh, But you know what, if you open your eyes and you look around where we live in New York City, there's all kinds of interesting stuff, and I say interesting using the term loosely, in all kinds of different religions that, you know, are, are trying to, in essence, get the Jew in or the Jew out, or in this case, get the Goy out. And then to be perfectly honest and a little selfish, I was so happy that my family wouldn't put her through that or put me through that. I'm John Suzuki. I'm retired. Circumstances beyond my control forced it, but that's okay. I'm born and raised in Queens, and I am uh, Episcopalian. I'm Lisa. I'm a licensed clinical social worker, and I run a integrative group private practice here in Manhattan. I can also say we have two daughters. Our oldest will be 
13 next week. I say that, then I have to like take a breath because I can't believe I'm going to have a teenager. Um, and then we have a daughter who's eight. Lisa and John are part of a lapsual community where their older daughter, Ellie, is currently preparing for her b'mitzvah. They found us a couple years ago when they were searching for a spot that felt right for their Jewish-Japanese children and for Lisa as a Jewish person married to an Episcopalian who practices actively. It was very important to me to raise our children Jewish. For me, it wasn't about the religious piece, it was more about cultural piece. John agreed to that. So when our first daughter was born, Ellie, we had a baby naming. And so it was sort of, I don't want to say natural, but that's just what we knew we were going to do. We had decided prior to being married, because that would I don't know what I would have done if he would have said, like, no, we can't raise our kids Jewish. Thank God we didn't have to, to deal with that. But You don't have to thank God, you have to thank me. <laughs> Coming from a Protestant background and the Episcopalian, we really are not concerned with who you are, where you're from, as long as you're here to move forward in faith. I guess in today's terms, it's very aware, uh, very open. And to me, there's nothing that we've been through to this point with our kids that is negative whether it's a baby naming, uh, whether it's the preparation for a b'mitzvah, everything is positive in faith, which to me is more important than having a vacuum of faith or lack of faith, as it were. There surely will come a time when there may be something that, that will clash heads on, but ultimately, you know, you pick and choose your battles, so to this point we haven't had any. My name is Amir Wine. I, I live in, in New York, in Brooklyn actually. I'm a Muslim, uh, practicing Muslim. I actually come from a, a multi-heritage family as well. Uh, my mother grew up Catholic in the U.S. My father's a Pakistani immigrant. They met at uh, Long Island Jewish Hospital in the 70s and uh, moved to Virginia to raise a family. I do legal work for nonprofits. I have a small art practice myself and, and I'm a passionate uh, art collector. I, I collect work from queer artists and artists of color and uh, female identified artists. My name's Danielle Derschlag and I'm a visual artist here in New York in Brooklyn. Um, Amr and I next week will have been together eight years. Eight years. And I am a Jew. <laughs> we noticed uh, fairly early on in our relationship that our, let's say the cultures of our religions have very different means of communicating with family. So the culture of family conflict that I was accustomed to was let's do this. Let's just get it out. We're going to talk verbally and openly and uh, I'm going to say large volumes. at large volumes yeah. about what, what bothers us, how and why we've pained each other, grievances on the table. That's very much the style of communicating. I come from not just in my family of origin, but in my Jewish culture of origin. Um, and Amir's style was very different. It's very, it's very much the opposite. You know, my father's South Asian, so this may be particular to just Muslims of South Asia or just South Asian people, but 
I've com compared notes with other Muslims from different areas, and it's very similar, is that we all lie to each other in the family. So it's basically like, how was school? School was great. It doesn't matter if I got an F, doesn't matter if I've been named, you know, the president of whatever club, school is fine. What's interesting is, you know, when you're in a couple with someone, communicating with the respective families is, at least our method is, you know, Danielle communicates with her family, I communicate with my family, but we each have to serve as translators for, for each other's experiences. So, a small example, we, we have a friend who's, who's very ill and she saw a picture of this vintage coat that my mother owns but no longer wears and she was like oh my god that vintage coat is beautiful and you know danielle and i got home after speaking to our friend and we were like you know what your mom doesn't wear that coat anymore we should ask her to give it to your friend right so my my sort of suggestion was call her up and ask her if our friend can have it very deliberate right and i said no i can't do that if i say that she'll never give it to her <laughs> <laughs> so i said to mom you know like it's a beautiful coat. Uh, you know, do you still wear it? No. Oh, you know. Uh, you know. I showed a picture of a friend of mine. You don't remember her? Oh, yeah. No, she's very sick. Oh, you know. She said that coat looked beautiful. Really cheered her up. Two days later, my mom calls me and says, "You know, how would you feel if I gave that coat?" To <laughs> Gosh, mom, that's just that's so sweet. I didn't even think of that. That's just a you know, and that's how we interact with our families. I'm literally incapable of that. <laughs> like incapable. So I, I admire it and I honor it. It's absolutely Amir's family's way and, and the way of a lot of Muslim families that we know, but um, it is absolutely oppositional to my natural approach. In both of our traditions, I think it's no stretch to say that family is a very central thing, but at least it, in my family, what's interesting is that they've really come to enjoy the times when Danielle is there because they're excited because they're going to find out all these things about each other <laughs> that they've never known before. The joke in the family is that now that Danielle's in the room, we're going to find out everything about each other. Because what I consider an introductory question in Amir's family is a deeply personal question. Are you dating someone in his family culture is an invasive question. In the culture I come from, we haven't started yet. <laughs> spoke with Danielle and Amer a few weeks ago, getting ready for the show, I described them as being a Jewish household, meaning, in my idea, a household in which there is at least one Jewish person. And Danielle was quick to correct me. We don't call ourselves a Jewish household. We identify as a Jewish Muslim household. Yeah. And it's really meaningful and important to both of us that it's shared space, that, but both our traditions are honored. And I grew up with a version of Jewishness that I could only describe, and I say this lovingly, but honestly, as relentless. Really relentless. I was at the kind of table where, like, the fact that Elizabeth Taylor converted was still a topic of conversation. You know, that was the kind of home I grew well up in. Well into the 90s. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, we, the first question about anything was, were they Jewish? Are they Jewish? I grew up with one parent who became a rabbi and one parent who might as well have been a rabbi. I found parts of that extremely enriching and fortifying and parts of it really unfortunate and stifling. And part of what I love about my marriage with Amir, mostly I just love Amir, but one of the things I love about being with Amir is actually I find it to be a relief and a release to be in partnership with someone who is not constantly talking about Jewishness. I think about Jewishness way too much. My artwork is exclusively about Jewishness. There's something 
that feels really healthy and releasing to me about the fact that my partner doesn't share that. I have had Jewish partners who shared that. It was exhausting. Like Danielle, Lisa tried dating Jewish men for quite some time. Because that's what I was supposed to do. You know, J-Date. I mean, I, this was like before the acts, right? J-Date had just come out. I was like all over J-Date, you know? And I just couldn't, it just didn't work for me. Like, I just would go out with these, and there's nothing wrong with Jewish men. It was just not for me. It was like I was bored. There was no, it wasn't dynamic. And, you know, when I met John, I felt very different. And we connected in ways that I had never been able to connect with anybody. And But I really, it was very conflictual for me. And there was a lot of pain involved in sort of getting to a place, and a lot of therapy, getting to a place where, you know, I, I felt like we could move forward. You know, because I, I imagine that people are listening and that, you know, people who may be in interfaith relationships and are trying to, like, think, can I do this? How am I going to do this? So I feel like it's important to talk to that. For us, it was it was not an easy road. And I always say, like, we dated for a very long time. We met in 97, we got married in 2005. And I think part of the reason that we dated for so long was because it was really fraught. I mean, 15 years into our marriage, I still tell people to this day, I love my wife as when she was my girlfriend. I loved her when she was my fiance. And I still love her as my wife. But if it were up to me, we'd still be boyfriend-girlfriend. I never had dreams of a fairy tale wedding. I don't think I ever had dreams of getting married in general. I knew I wanted to be with Lisa, and we were together. We were living together. I mean, who's got it better than that, right? So, at some point, I decided to get off my stubborn horse and say, okay, We'll shell out all this money to have a party instead of pay for a house or buy a car. And go for it. Because if, if that's what's going to make her happier, then who am I to stand in the way of that? We found a rabbi that was an interfaith rabbi. We found him on the internet. Nice guy. He ended up doing our daughter's baby babings as well. So there was a nice sort of thread for that for us. Um, and we had, we had a ceremony and a reception and all of that, uh, but it was in an art gallery, so it was not in a religious space. I saw it as an opportunity for us to merge faith, culture, tradition, family, everything. We have a ketubah. A Jewish wedding certificate or contract. <laughs> which has Japanese maple leaves in the uh, background, I guess you would say. The chuppah is essentially the canopy that you get married under. And our chuppah was sewn together by my sister. It's a quilt, if you will, of two American flags, a Japanese flag, and an Israeli flag. And then my aunt's mother, sisters, and female cousins folded a hundred or so origami cranes, which hung from the chuppah. The only thing that I really felt strongly about was having at least one little piece of my faith. And speaking with Rabbi Tobin, I said, you know, do you think you can throw the Lord's Prayer in there somewhere? 
and he did. And it's, you know, on the surface, it's fairly inane. It's just one prayer in this. But it was like a piece of me or a piece for me. While John and Lisa sought to, in some ways, combine their religious traditions and their cultural backgrounds for their wedding, Danielle and Amir made a very different set of choices. Ours was pretty non-standard. Well... Or stand, or very standardized. It depends on how you view it. It depends on your view. So, um, it, initially when I got together with Amir and fell in love with him, it was really meaningful and important to me that I was not actually going to be his wife or anyone's wife. And marriage was not something that I was open to or looking toward. Yeah. And Amir, in all of his sweet openness, really... I was totally fine with He that. was fine with that. He just wanted to be with me. I knew I wanted to spend my life with him. We would joke that we wouldn't even live together. Right. Originally, <laughs> 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 we had jokes about, like... The two homes at the bridge in between. Right. But we had jokes about that. I really treasured how independent we both could be in partnership. Um, but when Donald Trump was elected and he was saying really hateful, explicit things against the Muslim community... I, I did end up asking Amir to marry me, and he was very surprised and uh, burst out laughing at the time. But it is actually, in a kind of macabre way, a Jewish story, because when Trump was elected and I started to be really concerned for Amir's safety and the safety of his community and didn't know what was ahead, I thought about my own tribe's history of trauma and loss. You know, there have been moments in Jewish life where the non-Jews married to us saved us. That is a part of Jewish history. And I just thought, if God forbid there was anything coming up where my being Amir's wife could somehow protect him, that I needed to put my own sort of ego-feminist kind of credentials aside and really consider that. Very quickly, what mattered most to me was that we had zero guests. That was my number one Rule. But but you have to unfortunately have or fortunately have a witness in the right. stage. Right, we found that out about two days before we went to City Hall, where we got married. Yeah, so we called uh, the the friend who had set us up, and she was our witness at City Hall. Yeah. And you know, Hillary had lost not that long ago, so it was really important to me to get married in a pants outfit. So I was in pants, and we we went to City Hall and got married. And you know, we had I'm sure some discussion about where we were going to get married. But I I don't, I don't want to speak for you, but for myself, I'll say. I really wanted it to be on neither of our religious turfs. Yeah, that was important. There was some there was some sort of calculus that we did where we were like, okay, could we find an imam and a rabbi who would marry us? And I'm I'm, I'm sure we could. We live in New York. You could totally find those two people. Right. And or do we find a third person? We would jokingly say like, oh, we could just find a Unitarian and get right. this Right, like done. there must be a Quaker. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then, but at the end of the day, we were like, you know, we're, we're going to do this in City Hall. Um, and we, at the time, and still from time to time, say, you know, if we would like to add a religious dimension or ritual, we could later revisit the issue with one of our respective faith leaders. Or, or both. Or both. And yeah. just, you know, to memorialize our union in that way. But... You know, uh, I like City Hall and, and its marriages. There's, it's, it's very New York. You take a number like you're at the deli. Yeah. But there are all these people like in from various walks of life and all sorts of different expressions who are yeah. just just overjoyed. It's it's the yeah. happiest government office you'll ever be in. <laughs> right. And also, it feels like you're waiting for a sandwich, and then all of a sudden, there's a man in front of you saying the thing that you've seen in a million movies, 
And if you're Amir and myself, you both simultaneously just, just burst crying. into sobs. Right? <laughs> so you've been sitting there in this very bureaucratic kind of waiting line, yeah. and all of a sudden it's extremely emotive. I think our entire ceremony was under a minute and a half. Danielle and Amir are right that if they had wanted to find a rabbi and an imam to officiate their ceremony, they probably could have. I can't speak for the imams, but I can say that there are certainly rabbis in the city of New York who would be willing to co-officiate with a member of a different faith tradition. But in this same city, there are many rabbis who are not only unwilling to officiate with a member of a different clergy denomination, but also are unwilling to officiate at all for marriages between folks who are Jewish and folks who aren't. For Rabbi Roli Madelon of B'nai Jeshrin, the decision to officiate at interfaith marriages came after much consultation and study with members of the entire community, along with other leaders around the city. It was a very momentous decision. It was a very important moment in the life of this community. Uh, we were actually making a shift. It was a very significant shift. In order to get to that place, what, what drove us to that place is actually that members of our own congregation you know, young people who have grown up here, who have uh, learned here and experienced this community, came back to us and said, you know, uh, we were educated here Jewishly and formed here Jewishly, and then we went somewhere else, and then we fell in love with someone who's not Jewish. And we're coming to you and asking if you would bless our union and work with us and, and help make this moment in our lives in the future that we envision together to make it into something sacred you know with with your blessing and the blessing of the community and and with jewish with jewish content and we don't want you to turn us to somebody else to some rabbi who we don't know we're saying we're not also intending to leave judaism we we want to remain committed we want to re, uh, continue to be rooted within our tradition and we and our partner is willing to explore living within a Jewish home. And we're bringing this person into our family, and we're bringing this person into our community, this, this person that we fell in love with, and, and why not? You know, they said, you educated us in the in values of being open, respecting other people, respecting the, 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 the value, the dignity, the, 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 the sacredness of every person. And we found somebody who shares our values. They share our values about, how we see the world, about social justice, about the dignity of real human beings, about the environment, about raising kids, and, you know, about openness, about open-mindedness. And all of a sudden, when we come and, and bring somebody who shares the very values with which we were educated as Jews, you say no. So this opened the door to, a, to a, actually to say, yes, well, let's, let's explore this. Let's, instead of just saying no, let's open our mind, let's open our heart. We worked on it for, actually with the community for a year. But before that we were in a group of, of colleagues and, and scholars, and Amichai was part of this, that really brought all the questions to the table, you know, to, from legal questions, textual questions, historical questions, sociological questions, psychological questions, and then we had a process with our community. And then at some point there was a, uh, there was a moment when we realized that for us it was more important to have, rather than just to marry two people who are Jewish, we wanted to marry two people, to join two people who are committed to building a Jewish home, a, a home with Jewish values, with God's presence, with 
a connection to community and so on and so forth. And when we figured that out, when we said, you know, it's, it's more important to us that that be the, the, the case, the f decisive factor, then, then we said, okay, well, that, now we, we can do this and uh, we participate in a ceremony like that, which I, which I find to be very beautiful and very moving and very, very holy. This is not for everybody. We are happy to join two people who are committed to having a Jewish home. That's, that's as far as we got. I don't think there's anything wrong, immoral, inappropriate, undesirable about people who make other decisions to join themselves because they love each other and they want to share their lives together and they don't desire to have a Jewish home. But we as rabbis and BJ, we've decided that we are going to officiate and participate in BLESS just for the people who are willing to commit to building a Jewish home. So what does it mean? So we have a number of uh, issues that we look at. For example, a connection to community, to Jewish community. A commitment to the value of, of tzedakah, of uh, sharing of your resources with other people who have less. Commitment to Shabbat and holidays, but not in the strict halachic way, but a commitment to make room in your life for a day of, of rest and awareness and, and a, a different type of consciousness. You know, in other words, to mark time in a Jewish way. Kashrut in the sense of how we consume the food that we eat and the things that we use and consume, to have some sort of mindfulness about, about that, you know which includes, of course, regard for the environment and, and the animals and so on and so forth. You know, what, what type of, uh, of library do you create in your home? What type of sacred books are there that, that foster uh, spirituality, that foster justice in the world and so on? So those are just a few examples. You know, we're looking at all of these things and if people say, we commit to all these things, you know, which are sort of rooted in, in Jewish values and Jewish tradition, then we say, great, now you have the elements to build a Jewish home. That's our house. But, you know, and right, which like, I would never call a Jewish home. I always call it a Jewish Muslim home. But it's always. Like, but it's like, there's, there's certainly no pork in the kitchen. <laughs> um, and, you know, like I said, there's a mezuzah on the door. We, we have commitments to philanthropy and charity. We have commitments to our community. Uh, you would like our book collection. You would love our book <laughs> One thing that we have always been continuously struck by in our relationship and also in the way our respective religions treat our relationship is religions are very similar. Like if you were to draw a Venn diagram of Christianity and Judaism and Islam, there's a lot more overlap in Islam and Judaism. I feel like even in this room tonight, with your joyful stories of first of all having found love, which let's not take that for granted, and then being able to negotiate your truths to come together, and I'm hearing the voice of your parents and grandparents and I'm hearing my own parents and grandparents. There is a sense of loss. And I just want to put it in the room because that loss is real. That loss is like, wow, we've kept this tribe going for thousands of years. Like, we've kept the walls up so that we can have our recipes 
and our songs and our private jokes and this vocabulary. And you know what? And we kept it going. Right, wrong, fear-based, persecution-based, yes, and. And we left the ghettos. Here we are, mixing and matching. Yay! And I keep hearing the price. The, the sadness of the rabbis who are mad at me still and won't talk to me. And the, the grandparents and great-grandparents and the ancestors who might be asking us a question that we won't know for another century. Was this worth it? Around the same time that BJ was wrestling with the question of whether to officiate at interfaith marriages, Rabbi Amichai Laulavi of Labshul began his own research and discovery, which led him to the decision to also officiate at some marriages between Jews and folks who are not Jewish. Rabbi Amichai published his research, titling it The Joy Proposal. I was just ordained out of the Jewish Theological Seminary, and Labshul was starting to grow and people came to me asking to officiate weddings. And I, as a conservative trained rabbi, had to say no. And I started saying no to some very dear friends and people whose path I respect immensely. So I asked for a year off from the Labshul board to not officiate any weddings at all and go back to the drawing board and research. And I had a hunch that in our Jewish tradition there is a precedent to this reality. And the precedent is a legalistic loophole almost, a, a, a reality from the Roman period where Jews lived in proximity to heathens and pagans and Romans and others, and they began to interact in a way where there was some choice and ability. And so the rabbis responded to the moment by creating another category that it was not a Jew or a Goy, a Gentile, it was somewhere in between. They called it a Geltoshev, a permanent resident, as opposed to a convert or an other. But I remember studying this and thinking, doesn't that status speak to today where people are not converting to Judaism because they don't believe in God, because they are Christian, because the Jewish partner isn't interested in a religious life, but they want to have Judaism in their home, and they love this Jewish partner. They're coming to me as a rabbi to make sure that there is a chuppah, with or without origami touches. And so my responsibility is to say yes to this third category. The first couple whose wedding I was asked to do came to me and said, you know, one of us is a Jew and the other is uh, not a goy, is a joy. I'm like, what? What? The couple is, uh, uh, is, is a gay couple. They're men in their 50s. And one of them was born Jewish and is a practicing Zen leader. And the other was born Christian and is a practicing Zen leader. And the born Christian said to me, you know, I'm not a goy, I'm a joy. And I asked, what is joy? And he said, a joy is a person who's both a Jew and a goy. My jaw dropped a bit. And then I said, listen, I want to borrow this brand. Give me a year to see if I can do this. And so you'll be my first wedding. So they were willing to wait a year, and they got married on Gay Pride 2017. I am an openly gay man officiating as a rabbi in New York City in the 21st century. And if I don't say yes, A, I'm a hypocrite, B, I'm words I can't say on, on a podcast, and I'm, and I'm a coward. Like, this is the paradigm shift we live in, and it's got to be yes, and, and you've got to lean in, into love, because at the end of the day, the bottom line is not religiosity or Judaism, the end of the day is humanity. Us living a worthwhile life fed by the religions that fed us. 
But because of the home I come from and because of the tribal reality we now still live in, maybe even more since the 2016 elections, I'm so aware of that voice in the room that is saying, ay, 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 what are we doing? So there's a whole orthodox side of my family that doesn't speak to me anymore. Um, us. Us. You know, before I dated John, they would invite me and my mother to all of their Shabbats and we would stay over. But, you know, once they heard that I was marrying someone that was not Jewish, they stopped talking to me and many of them stopped talking to my mother. On paper, these guys and I would get along famously. They love baseball, they love football, they love going to the beach, they love their kids. That's me. But we'll never know. And when you talk about dilution, you know, to me, I remember in our early dating, I would go to church with him sometimes, and I would walk into church, and people would be like, the night, they'd be like, if they knew me forever. Oh my God, how are you? Welcome, we're so happy you're here. And it was the nicest feeling. And then we, he would come to temple with me and not one person would come up to us and say hello. They would stare at us. And I was like, God, the Jews have it all wrong. Like, what is the deal? Don't they get it? Don't they get that, like, by not being so welcoming, we're diluting our own tribe? Whoever's in the room and whoever's listening, um, I wouldn't say we're the outliers. I think so many couples that I know and families that I know, individuals that I know, are already the second, third generation of a, such a diluted mm. household where for, for terrible good reasons of bad education and terrible synagogue, boring churches, horrible Hebrew schools, people don't know anything. So they fall in love, yay. And they're like, I think I have an allegiance to that thing that is important. I don't know anything. But meanwhile, there is my fiance's family and Christmas is awesome. God, no God. Or, you know, the Hindu, the thing. So the dilution is real as a fear when people come into it with 0.2 knowledge of what, what is it about? What is the richness of the tradition? Where is the contemplative? Where are the tools of consciousness? Where is the God concept as a metaphor for being alive and having justice? Where are the, the recipes? Thing? Once we don't have that and people choose the generic you know, thing, then that is the fear of the family members of yours who won't speak to you and the ones who won't speak to me because we strayed too far from the tribe. I think we've always had a both hand and our culture has always assimilated other cultures in, in vocabulary and mythology and recipes and humans. And I'm not into the like, you've got the label or that's what you live with, whether you're born and choose. We are experimenting with a whole new way of being human and building society. And we're seeing the backlash of the Brexits and the Trumpists and the Bibis and the fundamentalist Muslim, Christian and other and in India, like really afraid of this like both and. And we liberals, I'll speak for myself, progressive liberals are saying, no, 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 we gotta fight for the both and, and I want to. And I, again, there is a corner in my head that I don't think it's just my fear of the past that is asking a question about this experiment. What do we gain? from the mix and match of cultures and genes, and potentially what do we lose? I'm way more into the what do we gain, because I think we are, but I'm curious about that.
and I think we've got thousands of years of our respective paths that are worth cultivating and and it's just it's a question of how this will evolve I mean what worries me is uh, is uh, becoming completely unmoored and unrooted from anything that that we're becoming completely Sort of unrooted from any type of tradition, from any foundation upon which we stand that has, as you said before, cultures, traditions, recipes, music, songs, beliefs, uh, and social codes and so on. I, I mean, I, I'm also tremendously grateful to be living in this time. A and I believe that we need to be, to, to be connected to something, you know, that, that homes, people, couples, children, individuals, you know, that we need to be connected to something where we find some sense of continuity, some sense of holiness, some sense of, you know, so we can't reinvent everything. But we, we don't live anymore in a time of binaries. And, and by the way, as Michai said, many centuries ago, 2,000 years ago, there was some sort of a fluidity within Judaism. There was the insider, the Torah insider, there was the Torah outsider, and there were people in between. And then for some reason that sort of was interrupted for a long time, and now we're back in that place where there's people along a spectrum. And with all of that, I believe that we need to be rooted somewhere. Part of what keeps Danielle grounded in her own faith is actually helping Amer to celebrate his. During the month of Ramadan, there's a lot of opportunity to reflect on the two faiths of Judaism and Islam side by side. Ramadan is a period of roughly 28 days where each day Muslims fast between sunrise and sunset. You abstain from liquids, food, physical intimacy, from smoking, from swearing. Um, if you're going to take it very far, you try not to get angry. <laughs> it's a process that, that marks perhaps the holiest month of the year. And so, I mean, I, I observe Ramadan. I, I fast for Ramadan, and uh, Danielle helps by taking care of me. It's an extremely holy month in our marriage. In our marriage, Eid is the big party that we have every year because I'm no longer observant. Eid is the thing that we really bring our community together. That's the last kind of celebration when Ramadan's done. Mm. But I'll also tell you, you know, I miss the physical intimacy during Ramadan, yeah. of course, right? So we've made compromises there. The first year, Amir wouldn't hold hands with me or kiss me on the cheek during daylight hours. Now I hold it. Now he will. But I will say that one of the things that Ramadan has done for me too, and a lot of being with Amir has done this for me, and, and I, I don't know how rabbis on the panel would feel about this terminology, but I find being with someone who is as committed to his faith as I was before I made a change in my own faith practice and, and walked away from that, I find it blissfully humbling blissfully humbling because when you are ensconced in tribal identity as deeply and relentlessly as I was growing up you can it's really easy to believe that your core group has the answers the way of doing it the sacred practice I remember Yom Kippur used to be my favorite day of the year and I would always think what could match the holiness of this experience it was so seismic for me and now I'm with someone who does 30 Yom Kippur's in a row. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's. <laughs> Close enough. So, you know, I, Ramadan is a time where I feel tremendous respect and admiration for my partner and also great relief that I don't have to do it all at once. <laughs> 
you know, there's an assumption, right, that if you're bringing outsiders into Jewish life, that what you are tethered to, the ancientness, the holiness, will become unmoored, that there's something innate to that recipe that results in being unmoored. That might be, you're right, Amachai, this is an experimental time. But I can say in the partnerships I've known where someone is like myself, strongly identified with their Jewishness and they welcome and are lucky enough to fall in love with someone who is from a different faith, dilution is not what I have witnessed. I, that just doesn't match my experience. I understand the fear and I understand the concern, but in the early days of this experiment, it's not what I personally have seen. As I'm listening to this conversation, it is so clear to me that one of the motivations for why I do what I do is because at the end of the day, everything I've said about loyalty to the tribe, what I'm interested in is not whether you're going to be Jewish or Muslim or Christian or Hindu. I really want to know whether you, we, can wake up to our deep sense of humanity and spirituality and cultivate a practice that will make us better people. I want to bring people in. I want to, I want to engage. I want to have the conversations. I want to put the concerns on the table, you know, the stuff that Amichai was talking about. And finding the, the connection and the thickness and, the, and the, you know, the, the beauty of the tradition or the traditions. You know, I, I don't want to be the one to judge people. I got tired of turning people away. I want to begin from a place of openness and yes and to start a conversation. At the end of the day, it's about being a human being. And it's not about being Jewish or Christian or Muslim or Buddhist. Those are the, you know, that's the tap. And we're talking about the water. And I'm interested in the water, not the tap. This conversation was two hours long. We got into so many details that couldn't make this final cut. And I'm grateful for the openness and vulnerability that both of our couples showed along with our two rabbis. One thing I know for sure to be true about Judaism, and there's not many things I would say that about, is that we are a religion that privileges questions, even challenging questions, even questions that might not have straight answers. In fact, especially questions that don't have straight answers. And I have a hunch that that's part of why our faith is built on so many stories just like the stories we heard today. Deep thanks to Rabbi Amichai Lalavi, Rabbi Roly Madelon, Danielle Derschlag, John Suzuki, Amir Wine, and Lisa Zerndorfer for being our guests on this Packed with Wisdom episode. And thanks, of course, to B'nai Jeshrin for being our hosts. Our next episode will be recorded live on March 5th, also at B'nai Jeshrin, from 7 to 9 p.m., and will be on the topic of race. If you're in the New York City area, please do come and join us as an audience member. As always, I love being in touch with listeners. You can reach out over email at podcast at gmail.com, our website, podcast.com, Facebook, Twitter. If you like us, please rate us and help spread the word. We'll be back next month. Till then, this is Jew 2, Tales of the Mixed Multitude.